But I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation. We're going to be looking at the church that had a door of opportunity, the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And we'll be reading through verse 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come before you and we want to know your word, Lord. We want to know your ways. Father, we want to learn from this letter, this very personal letter to the church of Philadelphia. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and Holy Spirit, would you use my mouth and my heart and my tongue for your glory that I might speak only those things that are honoring to you, that I might speak only those things that are in accord with your word and in keeping with your heart for your people who you love so much. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to want to even communicate with us at all. And here we have in our hand your very word to us that we can learn from and grow from and take warning from, but also gain great encouragement from. And so I pray that you would use this time for your glory. And Holy Spirit, that you would touch each of us. You have a way of meeting each of us right where we're at. And we're all coming from different places and we have different things happening in our lives and we're facing different struggles and different joys but you minister to each of us individually, specifically, very intimately. And I pray that you do so again today and that we could praise you even now, thanking you for what you're going to do. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A door of opportunity. That is a very nice thing to hear. It's kind of got a very pleasant ring to it. We all like doors of opportunity. We like when the door is flung wide open and we know exactly which way to go and it's like God's hand is on it we can see it everyone around us can see it and we're thinking ah, you know one of those moments when you can know without any doubt that you are absolutely without question in the will of God it's all the other times in life that are a struggle <laughs> when we're not quite sure and, and we're not sure if it's this door or that door and we're running into closed doors but this particular church that Jesus is writing to the church of Philadelphia was a door that God was leaving wide open, a door of opportunity. And we're going to be talking about what that is 
as we go through this, uh, this teaching in the book of Revelation. But it's important to note that God has a door of opportunity for all of us. First of all, He's got a door of opportunity in the fact that if, if we've called on the name of Christ, the only reason we were able to is because God opened the way. He's opened the door of opportunity for ministry, sharing our faith with others. The only reason we even have that opportunity is because God has given us peace in our country such that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many doors in your own life that you have walked through, some that you've probably run into and slammed into (laughs) and uh, maybe gotten a few nosebleeds from. But God wants to use you. God has a plan for your life. I don't care if you're a brand new Christian one of the young people that accepted Christ on Thursday night or if you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, the door of opportunity is in front of you. God wants you to walk through it. He wants to use you. He wanted to use the Church of Philadelphia and He wants to use the Church of Calvary Chapel Kauai or whatever church you're from if you're visiting from the mainland. But I want to take a few minutes and talk about this church and give us a little bit of background so that we can appreciate some of the things that Jesus is going to tell this church in this text. Philadelphia, as you know, means the the city of brotherly love. It's where we get our our, our own Philadelphia from in the United States, brotherly love. It was founded in 159 B.C. by King Attalus of Pergamum. His nickname was, was, uh, was Philadelphus, which meant lover of a brother. He actually named this city in in honor of his own living brother, who he had a very fond and close relationship with. And so that's where the city got its name. The city itself was located on the slopes, the lower slopes of a volcano and a whole series of a chain of volcanoes and cliffs, and, uh, which is, you know, for us in, in Hawaii, nothing unusual. But if it erupts every now and then, it can be a little bit trying. Well, this particular volcano and this series of volcanoes were, were, were on a fault line, which is why there was a volcano there in the first place. But this, uh, this city uh, had actually been decimated three different, uh, on three different occasions by earthquakes. And the result was is that years after the rebuilding of the city, which they did repeatedly, they still had these tremors, you know, these aftershocks. We, we don't really know about aftershocks over here in the islands, but if you're coming from California or San Francisco or the Bay Area, you might know a little bit about aftershocks. Well, this city had so many aftershocks for so many years that it was a very common thing for people to have to run out of the city during these tremors, not knowing whether it's going to be another you know, big earthquake that would kill again. Interesting to note, too, that the, uh, as Becky and I were traveling through Israel this last year with a group of people from the church, that uh, the only thing often left standing in these ruins were pillars. The, the walls were gone and the ceilings were gone and you know, all the decorations, everything's you know, gone. It's, it's just it's, uh, been torn away or fallen down or just rotted. But the one thing that is standing in most of these ancient sites are these pillars. And so we find that uh, even as Jesus is speaking about the church being a pillar and that you as faithful men and women of the kingdom of God are going to be pillars in the temple of God, God is saying you are permanent. You are going to be a permanent part of the everlasting kingdom of God, the temple of God, the new Jerusalem that will be coming down from heaven. We also know about this city that, that uh, unlike many other cities in the area of modern-day Turkey where this church was located, is that it was planted and begun for very strategic purposes. The reason this city was, was launched 
was not just as a trading post or as, a, as just another expression of the Roman conquering power, but it was planted there for a very strategic purpose of being a mission center, not for Christians, but for the Roman culture. They were trying to eradicate the non-Roman cultures for very obvious reasons. If, if people speak, you know, 50 different languages in a kingdom, it becomes very difficult to rule that kingdom. But if everyone speaks the same language, it's a much simpler proposition. And so Philadelphia was one of these cities that was planted very specifically because it was a gateway to many other cities in the surrounding area. And so it became a launching pad for Roman culture and language. And it was so effective that within about 150 years, that whole region, though it was not Roman to begin with, uh, was so Romanized that the people didn't even know their own language anymore. All they spoke was Greek. So very interesting that, that uh, God would allow this church, the church with an open door of opportunity, to be planted in a city that had been known for its so-called mission effort with the Roman culture, but now was becoming a mission effort for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus begins to identify himself as he does in all of, the, all of these letters. And if you follow with me in verse 7, he says, These are the words of him who is holy and true. Just uh, not by coincidence, but by the leading of God, many of the songs that we sang this morning had to do with the holiness of God. To be holy means to be completely separated, to be so distinct, to not be like anything else, but, but completely separated, distinctive in, in nature and character. And Jesus Christ is holy. By saying uh, he's holy, he's declaring his deity. He's talking about his righteousness. In Isaiah 40, 25, uh, God says of himself, To whom will you compare me? There is no one like him. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He's morally perfect and his character is without flaw or blemish. Almost like us. Well, maybe not quite. But the Bible does tell us in 1 Peter that we are to be holy even as he is holy. You see, he's separate. He's distinctive by his holiness, by his purity. And he calls us not to just be Christians that attend church, but he calls us to be holy along with him. Separated only for him, but also separate from sin, separate from ungodliness, separate from things that would harm our relationship with him. He also identifies himself as true. He's authentic. He's the real thing. That was one of the things that was a, a great need I had in order to come into Christ. I had grown up in church and I just hadn't seen much integrity. I hadn't seen much authenticity. And unfortunately, the closer I got to church, the less I saw. You know, when you come to a church for the first time, it's like, man, every, everything's fine, no problems whatsoever. And as you're in a church for a little while, you find out, gee, there's some problems here. And, and of course, you might be one of them, but nonetheless, there, there are some problems. But the fact is, is that it was the authentic walk of some genuine believers that made me or caused me to finally say, I believe in Jesus. I always did, but to make that transition into the kingdom of God myself, because I saw some young people, my own age, high schoolers, who were walking with Christ with integrity, with honesty. And Jesus is what could be considered as standing opposed to everything that is false. Anything that's untrue, Jesus is the very opposite. And it's a comforting thing to know that in the midst of so much that's false and perverted in our own culture, Jesus Christ stands alone as the one who is completely true. He also says of himself that 
not only is he holy and true, but he holds the key of David. This is a reference to Isaiah 22:22. It's a prophecy about Christ and his coming, the Messiah, that he would place on his shoulders, that God would place on the shoulders of the Messiah, the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I remember when I was a young boy, I was probably a toddler. I couldn't have been much older than three or four years old. And I grew up in church. My, my father, my mom and dad were both in music ministry and in fairly large churches on the mainland. And so I grew up uh, going to choir rehearsals every night. You know, they had like eight or ten choirs. And every day, I mean, now I look back on it and it was like, what, that was a, not a very good way to spend your childhood. But under the piano or, you know, cruising the halls of a dark church. But... I would go to these rehearsals because they couldn't, you know, having childcare every night was out of the question. So I would go along to these choir rehearsals almost every night of the week. And uh, um, I remember that the only guy hanging around at that time of night was the janitor. And of course, he was, he was mopping and cleaning and waxing floors and that type of thing. And this guy was the most impressive man I'd ever met. He was unbelievable. He had this... this dangling bunch of it looked like hundreds of keys to me on one of those zip lines, you know, one of those retractable uh, uh, keychains. Oh, was I impressed. I, I wanted to be just like him. I thought, you know, I've got to have one of those things. That is so cool. That is the way to go. And so I went home immediately after this uh, rehearsal and I, uh, the next day I told my mom, I said, you know, um, do we have any keys anywhere? And she said, well, what do you want keys for? And she said, I said, well, I, I just would like some keys. Inwardly, I was thinking, I want to be important. You know, I want to walk around. And I always knew the, where the janitor was. We kind of became friends because I could hear him kind of jangle, jangle, jangle down the hallway. Some of you guys relate to this. I don't know if the women do, but you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like keys are cool when you're a kid. And so uh, she, went to that, she went to that kitchen drawer, you know, that we all have, you know, the one that's kind of uh, junk. It's got this and that and some tape and some scissors and, you know, knives and it's got, you know, repellent. and I mean, it's got all kinds of strange things in it, things that we don't know quite where to put. And she went rummaging around in there and she found about half a dozen keys. And of course, they, they were there because we didn't know what they went to, but we were afraid to get rid of them because, you know, they might have been to something important, of course. But they were probably from about three or four moves ago uh, to some door that nobody even cares about anymore. So she got these bunch of keys for me and put it on a little keychain and I put it right where that janitor put it on his and I just jingle, 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 you know, walk around and boy was I important. I was like, I was it. I was happening. Of course, unbeknownst to me, I was really nothing and it, it, what, I, <laughs> what I was doing mattered uh, not at all because I, I had no authority to go along with these keys. So I had the keys but no authority because I had no idea what to put these keys into and I couldn't unlock and I couldn't shut anything. But in contrast to my experience as a young boy, Jesus has the authority. And the Bible tells us in, in Revelation that we've already looked at that He is the one that holds the keys to death and Hades. I mean, He is the guy with the keys. If anybody's got keys, it's Jesus Christ. He has the power to unlock the heart of a man or a woman to receive the gospel. He has the power to open doors for a believer where there is no possible human way. He can make it happen. He is the one that holds the keys. He holds the keys to the door of life and He certainly holds the key to whatever things that you're working on in your life. He's the one that knows the direction He wants to take you. He knows the door He wants you to go through. But you've got to go to the guy with the keys. He is the one that holds the keys in His own hand. 
and he has the authority. And the Bible says that what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, there's something important for us here, and I want to take a minute to kind of unpack this. Many of us, at various times in our lives, have tried to open doors that Jesus never wanted us to go through. And we've suffered for it. Some of us, myself included, are still, to some degree, plagued by things that happened in the past. We're completely forgiven, and yet we still suffer, to some degree, the consequences of trying to force open a door that Jesus said, don't go in there. It might have been an uh, an inappropriate relationship. It might have been a business dealing that was less than honest. It might have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, an area of habitual sin, some sort of an addiction that we were willing to walk through and we, we knew it. God said, don't go in that door. And in spite of his, his warnings, we said, no, I am going to knock that door down if I have to ram my head into it. And of course we did and got all bloody. And uh, we can look back on it and say, that was dumb. We don't want to do that again. But the fact is, is that the body of Christ and Christians oftentimes do themselves great disservice and great harm and even the kingdom of God harm when they try to force open a door that says, don't go in there. There are many things that Christians do that can be forcing open a closed door, a relationship that we know is not right. The person that we're with and that we're excited about is not even a believer. We're a Christian. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked and yet we're just bound and determined because we're in love. We are going to violate Scripture. And, and Jesus says don't go in that door. And he closes it and we get all miffed about that and we get upset and kind of have a little pity party about how God's not letting us have our way. Well, all I can tell you is that doors are shut by God for our benefit, for our our protection. And so it behooves us, and I, you know, I'm almost 40 now. I'm getting older by the day. And, uh, but the one benefit of getting older is that you kind of learn a few lessons along the way. Hopefully we're learning faster and faster. But the fact is, is that, uh, we, we do a great disservice to ourselves when we try to push and cajole God into opening a door that He's not opening. But if God has opened a door, I've also seen the flip side of this where God leaves a door wide open for the Christian community or for the individual believer and they go, oh, I don't know, that's not really what I want to do. You know, He's opened a door of evangelism for us and we're like, well, I'm not really very good at that. Or He opens a door of service for us and we say, I'd rather be served than, than serve. Or he opens up a door of you name it. And he he says, I want you, I want to use you in this particular way at this particular time right here with these people. And we say, well, I don't know. I'll have to kind of give that some thought. And so we can be in error on either end, either by pushing and forcing a door that God doesn't want us to go through or by not entering into a path of life and freedom and fruitfulness that God wants us to enter. And so either one we want to avoid. Now Jesus goes on and he says, as he has done in all of the other churches and will in the next church as well, is that he knows their deeds. And I won't expound on this. I've talked about this uh, uh, quite often already through the first five churches that we've looked at. But suffice it to say that he knows everything about us. And And he knew everything about the church of Philadelphia. Now, in contrast to all the other churches, with the exception of Smyrna, this is the only church that doesn't have a rebuke from Jesus Christ. It's the only church where he doesn't have something negative to say about their performance or their obedience or some area of their Christian spiritual life. He's got nothing bad to say. 
oh man, I'm, I, I'm like, I guess I'm a pastor and just like other pastors in other churches and just like you hopefully as believers and believers in other places of the world that we all want to be like the church of Smyrna in Philadelphia where God doesn't have to say anything bad because we are doing everything he's called us to do. We're not doing everything there is in the world to do, but we're doing what he's called us to do. And we're doing it to his glory and for his pleasure. We might not even be stellar at it, but we're doing what he's called us to do. And so the church of Philadelphia is only the, the two of the seven that didn't receive a rebuke from God. Instead, Jesus says in verse 8, if you're following along, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. God has given or entrusted something of great value to this church. He has made a way for this church to be fruitful. He has made a way for this church to enter into His blessing, to enter into partnership with Him in the building of His kingdom. There is no greater honor for a Christian than for God to open up a door of opportunity for ministry. There is no greater blessing or honor for a believer who's walking in the Spirit, who's received the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has the Word of God in their hands and they can read it and enjoy it and be renewed by it and fall more in love with Jesus every day. There's no greater honor than for God to say, I have something for you to do. I've got a mission for you. And for Him to open up a door and to give a people or an individual the opportunity to co-labor with Him and to be partners in His great work is almost unthinkable, considering who we are. But Jesus says that He has given this church just such an opportunity. Now, what is this opportunity? Well, I think there are several things that we can say for certain that this opportunity involves. The first is salvation. Jesus says of Himself that He's the gate that he's the narrow way, that he's the bread of life. And in in Luke, he he identifies himself as a door, a narrow door. It's not a big door. It's not one where everybody's going to just kind of fall into, but it's a very narrow passageway, but it's a door. And it's it's a door that can be accessed by anyone who responds to Christ. He says of himself, I am that door. I am that door of opportunity. A wide open door for anyone that would come and say, you know, I've tried all the other doors... I've tried door number one, I've tried door number two, and all the other ones, and I want door number three. I've got, something's got to be better than this. It doesn't look very attractive in some ways. It's going to be a little costly at the front end here, but but yeah, I want to give up everything that you've given me so far for that door. And all of a sudden it opens up and it's riches beyond imagination for a man or woman who comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a door that is open to this world right now. But it's not open everywhere. I was just reading an article on China and their crackdown on on religious groups, including uh, Christianity, which they consider a sect or a cult. And they are cracking down and pastors daily are being hauled away and killed and imprisoned and their families are tortured. It's a gruesome thing. And this isn't happening just in China, but it's happening in many other parts of the world, especially the Muslim quadrants of the world. And men and women are are paying a a dear price in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the door that God has opened for us, I'm just like you. Sometimes I take it for granted. If I were in China, and all of a sudden, and I was Chinese, and I was a Christian, all of a sudden it was legal to be evangelizing, you could not get me to shut up after years and years and years of having to do this secretly. 
And yet, here, even on this island and in the United States, we have a wide open door for evangelism. And yet, so many of us, you know, are, we, we want to do it, and, and we are doing it to a certain degree, but if we realize the, the import and the significance of this door that's open for only so long, I think we would be much more active in sharing our faith. As, you know, in, in Philemon, Paul says, I want you to be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. He wants us to be active because the door may not be open forever. You know, the, the more I read the news and the more I see what's happening in our culture, and I just read an article just the other day about, uh, about the, the new program lineup for, uh, for television this year, in the fall, that now they have, instead of, you remember Ellen DeGeneres and that, the big hoopla about that a couple of years ago? Well, now it's not just one uh, homosexual character on TV, but now they have 38 in prime time. 38 characters who are all homosexuals, not just in their own private life, but on the show. And, and we're moving more and more that direction. I'm finding that uh, standing up for Christ is a more costly uh, proposition. Uh, in the school systems, there are, are places that we now cannot teach or preach the gospel. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments are stripped off the walls. The Bibles can't be carried into schools in many, in many uh, districts. Uh, there are areas of public forum where we no longer can present the gospel of Jesus Christ without the ACLU uh, uh, bringing a lawsuit and there, certainly there might be a majority who are for Christ but the fact is is that through the laws that are now being uh, constructed that are certainly contrary to the original intent of our founding fathers uh, the Christian life is being is, is, is this door that seems so wide open is slowly shutting and I don't want to frighten you but I believe that, that there's going to come a time even within the United States where the door that is so broadly open now will not be nearly as open as it is today. And it might be even shut as it is in other countries. And so I think that uh, it behooves us, as it did the, the, uh, the Church of Philadelphia, to take advantage of every moment that we have, not wasting a, a day, not wasting a moment, not wasting a conversation, but seasoning everything that we do and say with the gospel of Christ that we might win some. So he places before this church an open door which has to do with salvation. It also has to do with missionary opportunity. And do you remember in the book of Acts when the disciples began to recognize when these Gentile believers were starting to come to Christ that all of a sudden they had to say, well, look, you know, God is opening this door. This is not a door that the disciples opened, but God is the one that initiated this great work with the Gentile unbelieving community. And so we certainly are looking at salvation from a standpoint the door is open for any man or woman to receive the gospel of Christ and to be transformed. But this gospel is also open with an open door, a wide open door for evangelism. Now I also think there's probably a, something that is, is a, an, another practical aspect of this open door that God has given the church. And I think that's just for service and for love. The Bible says that this is so important. I, I can hardly believe this verse. Listen to this verse. You are God's workmanship. It actually means a poem or a masterpiece. It's that He is writing, He is constructing your life to be a thing of beauty, a thing of, of wonder. And He says you are His masterpiece, His workmanship. For what purpose? Created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. That is your purpose. 
And the amazing thing is that the Bible says that God prepared all these good works in advance for you to walk in them. And so another door is wide open for you to love one another and serve one another. I, I find that there are two things that are required really to live this kind of a life of service. And I think the first is total surrender to the Holy Spirit. Just saying, my life isn't mine. I'll do whatever you want. And the other is a love for others. If you combine those two things together, you're available to God and available to walk through those open doors. But if either one is missing, then the likelihood of going through those open doors is greatly diminished. But if we love one another and have agape love in our hearts for one another and are totally surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit, then God will place before you door after door after door after door after door of opportunity. And your life will become nothing but a, an adventure every single day. It's like, God, what are you going to do next? How are you going to use me next? I mean, it really does become an adventure. There's a book that, uh, that I've, we've read as a congregation and that many of you probably are familiar with who are visiting called Experiencing God by Blackaby. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. Basically, what his premise is is that so often as Christians, we are the ones trying to initiate ministry. I've done this a, th- a hundred times. I was going to say a thousand times, but I'm going to cut myself a little slack. I've probably done it a hundred times at least where I've tried to initiate something for God. You know, I've tried to, I've come up with a great idea. I've seen it happen in another church or somewhere else. And I'm thinking, okay, this can work here. And we're going to try it. And, and, and I, you know, I plan and I strategize and everything. And, well, and it doesn't come to pass. You know, I work myself into a frenzy. I get tired. I wear myself out. I wear the people out around me. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, well, maybe God's not in this. And, and, you know, and, I, and I look back on it, and I'm thinking, why did I do that? You see, God is very specifically working strategically in each situation. I can't come with some pre-formatted design or system and, and put it on a congregation or in a situation, but I need to be seeking God and saying, God, what are you doing? How are you working in this very special, specific time in this very specific geographic location and what is it that you want to do and how can I participate with you so Blackaby's contention is that our first step needs to be God we are totally inept we don't know what to do we don't know where you're going unless you tell us we're lost and humbling yourself and saying God I'm just completely making myself available no plans no strategies nothing like that we want to bring glory to your name we want to honor you we want to do what the Bible says but apart from, specific, from that specifically how we're going to accomplish that we are waiting on you we need you to show us what to do you know very much like Jehoshaphat we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you and that's the kind of man or woman that God is looking for and it's a door that no one is going to shut If God is working, if God is initiating, you can be sure that when you're walking in it, it's going to be like a train ride. It's not necessarily going to be without bumps or twists or turns, but it's going to be evident to you and to people around you that God is blessing, that God's hand is on what you're doing, that God's leading you and empowering you and that the work that's happening is because of His Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus goes on and talks about something that's so important if we're going to walk this way to do it successfully And he tells the church, some people think this is a rebuke, but this is not a rebuke. If you look in um, uh, the, the, the next little part there, after he says, I've placed before you an open door, he says, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. 
This word strength is the word dunamis in the Greek. It's the same word that we get for the power of the Spirit. It's explosive power. I was, um, I was kind of intrigued, as I am every year, with fireworks. I, I never pop them myself because they've always kind of frightened me a little bit. I don't like... I got scared when I was a kid. People would throw them on me and stuff and it was a little scary. And, and now they've got these big A-90s and they've got bigger ones now and guys blow their hands off with these things. And, and uh, so anyway... Uh, the question is, how much power do you need? You know, do you, do you need a cannon to get something done? Or can a little M80 take a guy's hand off? And it can. So, this church, Jesus says, you have a little power. It's not a lot. It's not, you, you, you aren't the most powerful ministers of the gospel I've ever seen, Jesus is saying. You're not the most powerful, you know, in the kingdom of God and in miracles and and healings and things of that nature. But he says you have a little power. You have a little dunamis power. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that sounds like me. I don't think I've got a lot of power. Maybe some of you have a lot of power. But I think... Unless I'm wrong, most of us look at ourselves and say, that person's a lot more powerful than me. I wish I could be powerful as that person and everyone else is more powerful, but we are not powerful. I have an encouraging word for you from Paul's writing in Corinthians. It's when he was going to the Lord, the Lord had left him with some sort of a a thorn in the flesh and nobody knows what that is. If they tell you they do, they don't know what they're talking about. Nobody's absolutely certain what that thorn in the flesh is. They're they're ideas, but the, the point is, is that Paul came to the Lord three times and said, could you take this away because this is hindering my power. This is interrupting my life in some way. It's preventing me from doing what I think I need to be doing for your glory and your kingdom. And Jesus says, no, I won't take it away. And you want to know why, Paul? Because my power is not perfected in powerful people, but it's perfected in weak people. If you are a strong person before you come to Christ and you are very gifted and you're very knowledgeable and you're very influential and you're a leader and all these other things before you come to Christ, I, I feel badly for you because God is going to do a real work in your life humbling you. And He is going to have to start over with you. It is a great advantage to be a weak person in the kingdom of God as long as you find your power and your strength in Jesus Christ. It is a disadvantage to be a powerful person coming into the kingdom of God because God will have to turn your world upside down and strip you down and teach you humility. And He will have to get you to the point that you actually believe John 15.5 that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I didn't believe that for years. I was a pastor. I mean, I preached it. Oh yeah, I talked about it. But believe it? No. I really couldn't fathom that I was unable to do anything of spiritual value apart from the power of God. I'm just being honest. So if you are a weak person and you think you have nothing to offer, you are God's candidate for ministry. You are just the kind of person he's looking for. He's looking for weak people who are willing to absolutely rely on him. He's not even looking for perfect people because none of us are. He's looking for men and women who who will say again, like Jehoshaphat, Oh, I don't know what to do. I'm totally dependent on you. I'm coming to you and I'm crying out, there is no other God, there is no other rock, there is no other refuge. Unless you save, I die. That is the kind of man or woman he's looking for. Why? 
for this very simple reason. If a man or a woman is powerful before Christ and they kind of add on the gospel, who gets the glory? Who really gets the glory? Well, boy, that, it was good and wow, was it him and wow, was it her and oh, man, and there's almost this, oh, this person is just, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're the, yeah, you're the guy, oh, but they're so wonderful, you see? But if you take weak, failing people, like all of us, and you invest them with the power of God, and they become powerful in the kingdom of God because of their surrendered life to Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit, and fantastic things happen that everyone is like, wow, look at what's happening, and then they look at the person who it's happening to and they're saying, we know it's not him because <laughs> we know what he's like and we know it's not her. We know what she's like. Wow, look at who God is. And you will become like the disciples who when they came before the authorities, they said, we recognize these men as coming from Jesus because these are uneducated fishermen. And the glory and the power and the praise goes to Jesus Christ alone. And so a little strength is not a rebuke it's an encouragement. And I encourage you, never, ever, ever, ever fail to enter a door because you feel that you're inadequate. It is God's calling on your life that His power might be magnified in and through your weakness. He says that there are two ways that their power has been evidenced. The first is that they kept His word and they didn't deny His name. Those are the two things. Kept can mean one of two things. It can mean that they guarded it. They protected the word from being perverted or, or from false teachers entering their ranks. And so they guarded the word in that way. They kept the word. But also on an individual basis, they obeyed it. They lived according to God's word. And, you know, uh, forgive me, you'll hear it from me for the rest of my life as long as I'm breathing and preaching and teaching that the clearest evidence of love for God according to God is obedience. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, like keeping all these rules. What he's saying is that, that your heart will be so given to me that you will love me with all of your heart and you'll love one another with all of your heart. And so that's Jesus' call that we would keep his word. He also says they didn't deny his name. And this is under severe persecution in a culture that was not... Uh, really readily accepting Christianity by any means at all. They were faithful and loyal in their identification with Christ. I, I found over the years that, um, that friendship is not really friendship until it's tested. I, I used to have a lot of friends in high school. We all had friends at various times and stages in our life and, and hopefully we've all got at least a couple of friends now that like us and want to be with us. But... I've grown to appreciate those friendships where I've gone through some rough times where either I have failed and they've seen all my ugly weaknesses or they have failed and I've seen all of theirs or maybe mutually all at the same time. And in the midst of that, we've been able by the power of God and by humility and by an obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit, we've come back and we've reconciled. When that happens, then I know I've got a real friend. And I have found that the people I feel closest to are the people that I've actually had some bumps and grinds with. The people that I haven't, I appreciate, but I really don't know what would happen if we had a bump and a grind. And it's at those times when I really know where, my, where, where I stand with friendship. Jesus says to this church, you haven't denied my name. They went through some very difficult and trying times. And in spite of that, they didn't forsake 
their identity in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Proverbs 17 where the writer says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That's when you know you have a friend. Now, Jesus talks about the enemies of this church in verse 9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. How would you like to be identified as the synagogue of Satan? The first church of Satan. The, the second church of demonic hordes. You know, I was kind of flipping through the phone book the other day looking for a, a church that had that title and I, didn't, I couldn't find any. But they do exist. They do exist. And I'm not just talking about Wiccan groups. I'm talking about churches that long ago stopped preaching the word. They long ago abandoned the simplicity and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for other more interesting topics. I believe those churches that fail to preach the gospel lay themselves open very much like a door of opportunity, like a foothold of the enemy to the work of Satan. And I believe that there are probably more than a few churches that uh, the Spirit of God long ago left and if the Spirit of God isn't there, then who is leading the church? So Jesus characterizes this group as members of the synagogue of Satan. He also says that they falsely claim to be Jews. They were, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but they didn't have Abraham's heart because Abraham was looking forward to the coming Messiah. That's where Abraham placed his hope. But these Jews were placing their hope in, in being a physical descendant, very much like if, if uh, one of you said, well, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. Or I'm a Christian because, you know, I come from a long line of pastors, and yes, I, it's kind of, uh, kind of fallen onto my shoulders, even though, well, I may not walk with the Lord or do what He wants, but yes, I, you know, it's, uh, I've inherited that along with everything else, of course. But the Bible says no that uh, these people were, were not genuine Jews. They falsely claimed to be Jews because they failed to be Jews in the most pure sense of being a, a lover of the Messiah. He also finalizes, it's like, man, one, two, three, bam, 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 here comes the last one. He says they're liars. They are dishonest. And of course, this is a great contrast to what we just read about Jesus, who is holy and true. And so this group of people, as Jesus said, they carry out their father's desire and who's their father except Satan himself, who from the very beginning has been a liar and, and unreliable in everything that he does and says. But in spite of this, in spite of the fact that, that, that this synagogue of Satan is so destructive toward the church, and, and we do face that and we'll face persecution of various types, in spite of that, what does Jesus say is going to happen to these people? It says that they are going to come and acknowledge, they are going to come and bow down and fall, not at Jesus' feet, but at the feet of the believing church. And they are going to acknowledge that in spite of everything that they said and did in their life, that God does love His church and His people. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Esther. If you're a little bit lost or stumbling in your quiet time or daily reading, go to Esther in the Old Testament. It's a phenomenal book. It's filled with ironic twists and un un unsuspected surprises. It's just an unbelievable book. But I want to tell you just a little part of it. Haman, who was the second in command to the, to, the, to the king at that time of Persia, was a very arrogant man. And, and he really loved his position. He was very boastful and full of pride and he loved it when everybody bowed down, which everybody did, except one man named Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jew who was in the, the gate of the king and in some fashion a leader. 
but not nearly as, as elevated as, as Haman was. But Haman just hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down like everyone else to Haman. And it just, I mean, everybody else in the whole kingdom might bow down, but just knowing that Mordecai would not bow down was just eating under the skin of Haman. And he couldn't take it anymore. So he, he went to his wife who gave him very godly advice and says, why don't you just build a gallows and hang the guy on it and get rid of your problem? And so he said, hey, wife, that's a great idea. So he builds this gallows in a day. Now, unbeknownst to him, a door of opportunity for Mordecai opened. A door that no one could have imagined. The king that night couldn't sleep. And so he had one of his attendants come in and said, hey, you know, why don't you read some of my glorious history to me? You know, from the, the annals of my kingdom. And so this, uh, you know, the, the, the attendant comes and he starts to read. And, oh, glorious king. Oh, when you did that, that was incredible. And everybody went, oh, now, but then they got to this one section where it was noted that Mordecai had warned the king of a coup attempt. And there were several people that were going to try to kill the king and overthrow the kingdom and take over. Mordecai heard about it and he notified the king and, and that, that uh, coup was quelled and these, these uh, gentlemen were killed. And the king said at that, in the middle of the night, well, what was done for Mordecai to reward him? And the guy said, well, gee, king, I don't think anything. Nothing was done for him. Now, just at that moment, at the break of day, Haman came trudging up you know, to the to the king's palace and came in the inner court and he's thinking, all right, I got those gallows built. Just got to go ask the the, the main guy for permission. He loves me. He's going to let me do it. And so he walks in and right at that moment, the king says, who's in the outer court? Is there anyone in the outer court, any of my people that I could call on? And and his attendant said, well, king, Haman just walked in. He's your main guy. Well, bring him in. And so the king says to Haman, Haman, Come close. I've got something. I just read some very interesting things today and I I, want to ask you a question. What should the king do for a man he desires to honor? And of course, because Haman was so arrogant and puffed up with pride and so egocentric, he immediately thought, well, he's asking me what I would like for myself because he's obviously, he's thinking about me. I'm the guy he wants to honor. And so the story goes that, that... Haman, you know, says, well, king, this is what you should do for the man that you want to honor. You should let him ride on a horse that you've ridden on. You should let him wear your royal robe that you've worn. You should let him put on the horse the crest of the kingdom. And you should have the the leading man of your country, of your kingdom, walk him about the city and cry out to everyone that they might hear, this is what the king does for a man he desires to honor. And so the king said, that is a wonderful idea. I love it. It's great. It's perfect. Now, I'd like you to do that for Mordecai. He's the man I want to honor. Whoa. The Bible says his face fell. I don't know quite how that sounds, but it doesn't sound like it would be a good thing. Anyway, he was really depressed about this. And here, his mortal enemy that he had built a gallows for, he ends up walking through the streets of the city of Persia and has to announce that the king loves Mordecai. The king is honoring Mordecai. You want to know what happened to Mordecai after that and to Haman? You want to know? I'm not going to tell you. You have to read it yourself. The point is, is that there will be a tremendous shift that in a very remarkable way, a door that seemed closed, God will open and the unbelievers will fall at the feet of those who are believers one day and they will acknowledge that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, desired to honor and to love us. That's what awaiting 
What's awaiting a man or a woman who follows after Christ? Now the Bible also says that they kept their, uh, uh, they endured and kept God's command to endure patiently. And of course, this whole idea of trial uh, and tribulation that's coming upon the whole earth to test the whole world is the great tribulation. I'm not going to talk about that right now because we're going to be addressing that in the weeks ahead. But the point is, is that this is the very same tribulation that's spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, the very same tribulation that's spoken of in Jeremiah 37. It's a time of distress that has never occurred before. It will never be equaled. It will never happen again. It is a seven-year period beginning uh, shortly after the rapture of the church and then will proceed for three and a half years and at the middle point it's going to get way worse. But the point is, is that according to Scripture and my understanding of Scripture, the church will not be a part of that tribulation. The Bible says that he is going to keep us from that particular period of trial. Now, I do have to say that in the Greek, that can be translated two ways. It can be translated as he will keep you out of or through, I'm sorry, he will keep you through the tribulation or out of or from. So either one, you can translate the Greek either way. But in the balance of Scripture, and when you look at the uh, book of Revelation, I think it becomes fairly evident that God is going to rescue his people before that time. The encouraging news is, before we move on, is that every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled scripturally in order for that event to take place has been fulfilled. Which means that there is nothing standing in God's way from allowing that rapture of the church to take place even today. And I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you really living for the kingdom of God? Or are you a little distracted by this and that and the other thing and you've kind of lost your way? Well, can I encourage you as my brother and my sister in Christ, can I exhort you and encourage you to live for things that last and live for things that matter because at a moment's notice, he will come. That's what it says in this next section in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This word soon does not mean like next week or, you know, because some people are saying, well, gee, he wrote this a long time ago. How come it hasn't happened? Well, this word doesn't mean immediately in the sense that, you know, he's coming soon. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go this afternoon, I'm going to go to the beach soon. It's going to be soon, not very long from now. This word means unexpectedly, without announcement. It's not gonna, he's not going to all of a sudden say, okay, five-minute warning, I'm coming, or five-year warning, I'm on my way. What it means is that without any warning at all, having already spoken and shared with us everything that we need to know in order to walk with him, he says, I am coming soon, unexpectedly. And so Jesus says that he is not delaying, but he will come at the right time, and as Revelation 22 says, his reward is with him. And because of that, he says he wants us to hold on to what we have. Well, what do we have? Well, we've got a lot of things. We've got Jesus, for one, and that's enough. But he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us uh, one another. He's given us all kinds of rich blessings in this life, abundant life here, but eternal life that we're looking forward to as well. We have the inheritance of Christ. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Just look at the first couple chapters of Ephesians if you want to know what God has given us. It's a remarkable display of generosity on God's part. And what does Jesus say? He says, hold on to it. Don't let it go. Don't let someone take your crown. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that, is it talking about salvation and that you can lose your salvation? No, it's not. If you are a believer and if you've received Christ, the Bible says that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. No one can take you away from him. You're very secure. 
That's the problem with grace. I hate grace because of that because, you know, then you can do whatever you want and yes, you can sin if you want to live that kind of a life in response to the love of God and ruin yourself and ruin your witness and well, you can do that. God gives you that privilege but the privilege that we really have is that when God has transformed us that we would walk in obedience to Him because life is so much richer and more wonderful when we walk in God's ways. So he says, hold on to what you have. He's really referring to our reward. And he calls it a crown. You see, no one can take it from you, but you can fail to enter into that crown and experience that crown. I think there are really two things that we can do, primary things, or probably others, but two that come to mind that will cause us to lose our crown or reward in heaven. I think the first is that if we, if we just fail to run to win, we're kind of running half-hearted. You know, it's like you know, one foot in the, on the track and one foot in the world. And we're just not really there. We're not really available to God. And I think in that case, we can actually lose rewards that God wants to give us. He gives us an open door and says, hey, walk through here because there's a reward waiting on the other end of this because as you walk in obedience, I'm going to bless you. I mean, can you believe it? He initiates it. He tells us what to do. He's the guy that empowers us. And we just do what he says like, you know, dumb oxen. And then, and then he rewards us. It's unbelievable. But if we fail to walk through those doors, we give up or forfeit that crown to someone else who is willing to walk through that open door. And I don't want any of you to forfeit anything. And Jesus doesn't want you to either. So he says, hold on to what you have. There's a second thing that can keep us from experiencing that crown, and that's sin. And Hebrews talks about this. He says, don't let sin get wrapped around your legs and your ankles and entangle you and keep you from running a good race. So if we try to run the course that God has for us and we want to win the race and, and win the crown and the reward of Christ, then the Bible says that we've got to free ourselves of anything that would entangle us. I don't want to go down a laundry list. Let the Spirit work in your heart. What's in your life that may not be appropriate, that may be keeping you from running your race and, and from being a good witness and from being totally available to God? Whatever it is, the Bible says cast it off. Why? Because He doesn't want you to lose your crown. In Corinthians, Paul talks about this and he, you know, he says that we can, we're all building with something. You know, you're building your, your, the, on the foundation of Christ. You're either using precious gems and stone and, and uh, uh, you're using gold and silver or you're using wood, hand, stubble. We're all building something on the foundation of Christ if you're a Christian. And, and Paul says, look, build with good things. Build with honorable elements. Build with, with materials that will bring honor and glory to God. Why? Because... When the time of testing comes, when the judgment comes, there is going to be a fire that is going to rage in our spiritual workmanship. And whatever is left that has lasting value will remain. But whatever doesn't will be burned up and that person will be saved as though by fire, but he will lose his reward. So that reward was forfeited by that person because they were building with, with junk material. They were living a half-hearted Christian life. But the Bible says that if you will invest your life in things that have eternal value and build with things that have lasting, precious qualities, then those will last through the fire and you will not lose your reward. I, isn't it incredible that Jesus is in, encouraging the church and he says, please, don't lose what I want to give you. I have some great stuff for you. Don't fail to win that crown. Don't let go of it. Now, I've got to finish quickly here. But he promises a few things to the church as they overcome in verse 12. He says, Him who overcomes, I will make 
a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. There, there, there are a number of things here and I'll just go through them quickly. But Jesus says that you are going to become a pillar in the new Jerusalem, in the temple of God. Now, as I said before, a pillar often was inscribed with with famous people, with people of honor and people that the, that the city uh, builders wanted to recognize and acknowledge. And, but see, Jesus doesn't want to just write your name on that pillar. He says you will be a pillar in his kingdom. That's a phenomenal thing. Remember, everything else shakes, everything else falls down, but the pillars never will fall. It's a position of permanence in his kingdom. And you will never have to flee again. Earthquakes, tremors, everything else that may happen, you will never have to run out of this city because it is a permanent place and you are a permanent part of that structure. Jesus also says that the name of God will be written on that person. His own new name will be written on that person and the temple of Jerusalem, the the name of the temple of Jerusalem will be written on that person. Let me just... uh, i give you a, a quick illustration. Everybody on this island knows about tattoos. There are probably a number of you in here who have been tattooed. 